Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and financial regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers the period from June 30th to August 2nd. So let's get started with the United States Congress. On July 21st, the House Financial Services Committee's Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee held a hearing to examine the state of the bond rating agency industry, the efficacy of the reforms that have been implemented, and whether additional regulatory or legislative reforms are warranted. Subcommittee Chairman Brad Sherman of California asserted that there's an unchecked conflict of interest in the current issuer pays model and raised concerns that there's no check on the desire to give a high rating and make the issuer happy because of the protection from liability. Ranking member Bill Heisinga of Michigan argued, however, that credit rating agencies face potential conflicts of interest, regardless of whether issuers, investors, or governments pay for those ratings, and highlighted that following a thorough review, a public comment period, and a public roundtable, the Securities and Exchange Commission staff did not mandate any structural changes to the issuer pays model. Noting that the SEC's recent examinations indicate that nationally recognized statistical rating organizations are managing potential conflicts and producing ratings that benefit investors and issuers, Ranking Member Heisinga stressed that the commission has the right tools to intervene if credit rating agencies fail to do so and urged lawmakers to focus their efforts on real modern problems rather than rehash a fight that's decades old. Subcommittee hearing witness Amy McGarity, the chief investment officer of the Colorado Public Employees Retirement Association, offered recommendations on how to improve credit rating agencies. Ms. McGarity, who chaired the SEC's Fixed Income Market Structure Committee's Credit Rating Subcommittee back in 2019, indicated the SEC should consider the following nine reforms. Number one, overseeing a random assignment process for both structured products and corporate bond ratings with at least two credit rating agencies assigned to each issue to provide diversity of views. Companies could continue to pay for ratings through fees assessed by the oversight entity, and an additional amount could be set aside for the administration costs associated with this entity, which would be responsible for setting the compensation for initial and maintenance ratings. Number two, creating a performance scorecard for the credit rating agencies and increasing public disclosure by the agencies of deviations from ratings methodologies. Number three, requiring credit rating agencies to disclose more in-depth information about their models and how those models differ by industry. Number four, requiring companies to disclose how they select their credit rating agencies and the agencies that they decided not to select. Number five, requiring companies to disclose any credit rating agencies that rated a deal. Number six, 
having holders of publicly issued bonds vote to ratify or confirm confidence in the credit rating agencies selected by companies. Number seven, revising the process for disclosure of credit ratings for structured finance products. Number eight, identifying firms that were found to have failures by name in the commission's annual report. And number nine, requiring credit rating agencies to more effectively disclose their processes and consideration of all credit risk factors. On July 28th, CII sent a letter to House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters of California and Ranking Committee Member Patrick McHenry of North Carolina supporting H.R. 4617, the Order Flow Improvement Act. The bill, introduced by House Financial Services Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee Chair Brad Sherman of California, would require the Securities and Exchange Commission to conduct a study of and report back to Congress on payment for order flow received by brokerage firms for routing customer orders to market centers, including wholesale brokerages, alternative trading systems, and exchanges. The letter says CII agrees with Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler's concerns that payments from stock exchanges to market makers and brokers, known as rebates, raise questions about whether investors are getting best execution. In addition, CI's letter noted evidence cited by the SEC showing that broker-dealers may be routing orders to exchanges that have the best quoted prices but are suboptimal for customers in other ways because orders are either less likely or take longer to execute. This evidence indicates that broker-dealers may not be adhering to existing regulatory guidance that states firms should not allow access fees charged by particular venues to inappropriately affect their routing decisions. And in general, a firm's routing decisions should not be unduly influenced by a particular venue's fee or rebate structure. Also on July 28th, seven Republican senators sent a letter to Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler raising concerns about a trend of Chinese companies taking advantage of U.S. capital markets while ignoring the transparency that is required under U.S. law to access U.S. markets and urging the commission to take immediate and robust action in light of the recent crackdown by the Chinese Communist Party on Chinese companies listed on U.S. securities exchanges beginning with at least two actions. Number one, the expeditious implementation and enforcement of the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. And number two, thorough investigations of these companies concerning lack of transparency. In addition, the senators expressed concern that many of the largest U.S. underwriters have enthusiastically collected billions in fees and profits from these Chinese firms being listed on U.S. exchanges, and that asset managers and index providers similarly profit by including such firms in investment offerings and prominent indexes, including those used by the federal government's thrift savings plan. Accordingly, the centers recommend that the SEC, among other measures, take three actions. Number one, launch investigations into Chinese companies and their underwriters to combat potential fraud and reporting oversights. 
Number two, investigate potential risks to U.S. investors of variable interest entity structures used by Chinese companies. And number three, investigate index providers doing business in the U.S. that continue to add Chinese companies to their products despite these companies' lack of transparency. On July 29th, the House of Representatives adopted by a vote of 219 to 208 H.R. 4502, a minibus appropriations bill that would, among other measures, fund the Securities Exchange Commission at $1.99 billion, which is approximately $73.5 million above the fiscal year 2021 enacted level. In addition, the bill includes provisions stipulating that none of the funds appropriated under the bill may be used to implement the SEC's July 2020 amendments to its rules governing proxy solicitations. And CII supported that provision of the bill. On July 30th, the House Financial Services Committee favorably reported to the full House 11 bills, including the following five legislative proposals that would, one, authorize the Securities and Exchange Commission to reduce the reporting period for Form 13F disclosures from quarterly to monthly and expand the list of items to be disclosed on the form to include certain derivatives. Number two, prohibit market makers from trading ahead and require their CEOs to annually certify that they have performed reasonable due diligence during the reporting period to ensure that market that the market maker has not engaged in prohibited activities. Number three, direct the SEC to study and consider banning or limiting the payment for order flow in the form of exchange rebates or payments from market centers to broker dealers, conflicts of interest based on payment for order flow arrangements, and the impact of payment for order flow on the quality of order execution. As indicated earlier in this episode, CII issued a letter supporting this bill. Number four, limit the family office investment advisor registration exemption to offices with 750 million or less in assets under management. And finally, number five, require the U.S. Government Accountability Office to conduct a study on the trend of gamification of online trading platforms. Turning now, the recent activities of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. On July 7th, the SEC's Asset Management Advisory Committee met. And at that meeting, two of the group's subcommittees released recommendations to the commission on disclosure about gender and racial diversity within the industry and on disclosure used for ESG investing. Subcommittee on Diversity and Inclusion recommended that the SEC require improved disclosure in commission filings of four items. Number one, gender and racial diversity in the workforce, officer ranks, and ownership ranks of advisory firms. Number two, racial diversity on the fund boards of each fund, as well as gender and racial diversity data about the workforce, officer ranks, and ownership ranks of advisory and sub-advisory firms employed by each investment company registrar. Number three, whether and to what extent the asset manager's policies include diverse asset management firms in the pool of those considered and or selected. And number four, conflicts of interest by registered investment advisors 
who serve primarily as consultants to institutional investors in making recommendations on the selection of investment advisors and funds. The subcommittee also recommended that the SEC provide guidance clarifying that a wide variety of factors may be considered by fiduciaries in their selection of asset management firms, and that fulfillment of one's fiduciary duty in this context does not require automatic exclusion of asset managers who are newer to the industry or do not already have a certain level of assets under management. Subcommittee also encouraged the commission to study whether the limitations of the current pay-to-play rules allow for contributions to be made by market participants who have large political action committees and extensive lobbying budgets, which are funded by and typically used to procure influence for disproportionately large, non-diverse firms. The subcommittee on ESG provided very broad recommendations on what ESG disclosure the SEC should encourage from companies and slightly more specific suggestions on investment product disclosure. The new recommendations seem watered down compared to those the subcommittee presented in December, which called on the SEC to take three actions. One, adopt required standards for public companies to use to disclose material ESG risks. Two, use standard setters frameworks to require disclosure of material ESG risks. And three, require material ESG risks to be disclosed in a manner consistent with the presentation of other financial disclosures. The three new recommendations of the ESG subcommittee reveal that the July 7th meeting stated that the SEC should, one, take steps to foster meaningful, consistent, and comparable disclosure of material ESG matters. Two, encourage companies to adopt a framework disclosing material ESG matters and to provide an explanation if no disclosure framework is adopted. And three, initiate a study of third-party ESG disclosure frameworks for the disclosure of material ESG matters to assess whether the frameworks could play a more authoritative role in the future. Subcommittee on ESG also said the SEC should require asset managers to disclose two items. First, clear descriptions of each product strategy and investment priorities, including descriptions of non-financial objectives, such as environmental impact or adherence to religious requirements. And second, each product's planned approach to shared ownership activities in the statement of additional information and any notable recent ownership activities outside proxy voting in form NPX. On July 13th, the SEC announced charges against a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC named Stable Road Acquisition. Its sponsor, SRN-NI, its CEO, Brian Cabot, the SPAC's proposed merger target, Momentus, and Momentus founder and former CEO, Mikhail Kokorich. The charges resulted from misleading claims about Momentus technology, as well as national security risks associated with Mr. Kokorich. According to the SEC's settled order, Mr. Kokorich and Momentus, an early stage space transportation company, 
repeatedly told investors that it had successfully tested its propulsion technology when in fact the company's only in-space test had failed to achieve its primary mission objectives or demonstrate the technology's commercial viability. The order finds that Stable Road acquisition repeated momentous misleading statements in public filings associated with the proposed merger and failed its due diligence obligations to investors. While Stable Road, the order says that while Stable Road acquisition claimed to have conducted extensive due diligence of Momentus, it never reviewed the results of Momentus's in-space test or received sufficient documents relevant to assessing the national security risks posed by Mr. Kokorich. The order also finds that Mr. Cabot participated in Stable Road's acquisitions in adequate due diligence and in filing its inaccurate registration statements and proxy solicitations. The SEC's order also finds that Momentus and Mr. Kokorich also misrepresented the extent to which national security concerns involving Mr. Kokorich undermined Momentus's ability to secure required governmental licenses essential to its operations. Mr. Kokorich is Russian, and because Kokorich is a foreign national, he could not access parts of Momentus's technology without an export license. Momentus applied for that license, and it was denied for reasons related to national security. In addition, Mr. Kokorich was in the United States on a work visa, and in 2018, his visa was revoked. Mr. Kokorich applied for asylum, and that was also denied. In January 2020, after the merger deal was sealed, Mr. Kokorich stepped down as CEO of Momentus and left the United States. In an SEC press release about the charges, SEC Chair Gary Gensler noted that the case showed that those who stand to earn significant profits from a special purpose acquisition company merger may conduct inadequate due diligence and mislead investors. Chair Gensler added that today's actions will prevent the wrongdoers from benefiting at the expense of investors and help to better align the incentives of parties to a special purpose acquisition transaction with those of investors relying on truthful information to make investment decisions. Mr. Kokorich stood to obtain shares worth upwards of $200 million if shareholders approved the special purpose acquisition company merger. Without admitting or denying the SEC's findings, Momentus, Stable Road Acquisition, Mr. Cabot, and SRC-NI consented to an order requiring them to cease and desist from future violations. Momentous Stable Road Acquisition, Mr. Cabot will pay civil penalties of $7 million, $1 million, and $40,000 respectively. Momentous Stable Road Acquisition have also agreed to provide private investment in public equity investors with the right to terminate their subscription agreements prior to the shareholder vote to approve the merger. SRC-NI agreed to forfeit 250,000 founder shares it would otherwise have received upon consummation of the business combination 
and Momentus agreed to create an independent board committee and retain an internal compliance consultant for two years. On July 19th, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce sent a letter to SEC Chair Gary Gensler expressing serious concern about the Commission's decision to not enforce the proxy advisor rule it adopted in July 2020 and making recommendations on how to improve that rule. The letter says the SEC's suspension of the enforcement of the rule appears to be an effort to placate the proxy advisor oligopoly and a minority of activists that wish to preserve the status quo. The chamber also says it's worried that this action sets a precedent and signals to market participants that the SEC can arbitrarily pick and choose which regulations it will enforce. The letter argues the action harms the SEC's reputation as an independent regulator that is free from political agendas. The chamber also urges the SEC uh, to reaffirm the classification of proxy advice as a solicitation under the rule and to consider revisiting key provisions that were contained in a 2019 proposed version of the rule, including the following three items. One, a speed bump to disable automated voting by proxy advisors on behalf of institutional investors. Two, explicit requirements for proxy advisors to disclose conflicts of interest. And three, to provide companies with time to review and comment on recommendations to maintain an exemption from the proxy solicitation rules. On July 20th, speaking at the Brookings Institution, SEC Commissioner Hester M. Peirce raised concerns about the real-life uncertainties and complications of a potential mandatory ESG disclosure regime, arguing that many ESG issues lack a clear tie to financial materiality and therefore do not warrant inclusion in SEC-mandated disclosure. Commissioner Peirce observed that proponents of an ESG disclosure framework insist that materiality is an appropriate restraint and cite academic studies showing that ESG items are financially material. Commissioner Peirce argued that these views beg the question of whether the current materiality standard and the enforcement regime that backs it up are missing the mark. Commissioner Peirce also argued that an ESG disclosure rulemaking cannot resolve the many debates around ESG models, methodologies, and metrics, and emphasized that the SEC is not particularly well-suited to make judgments about which climate metrics should be reported by whom. In addition, Commissioner Peirce expressed concern that ESG mandates would place political issues front and center at corporations and the SEC along with them. And caution, the serious democratic legitimacy concerns arise when an independent agency expands its own authority. Commissioner Peirce stressed, moreover, that these concerns increase significantly when an agency delegates to one or more unaccountable third-party standard setters the authority to establish disclosure requirements for an ever-expanding list of politically and socially sensitive subject matters. Accordingly, rather than embarking on a prescriptive ESG rule that departs from and undermines the SEC's limited role, Commissioner Peirce suggested that the commission work within its existing regulatory framework 
by, among other measures, taking two actions. One, issuing updated guidance intended to help issuers think through how the existing disclosure regime already reaches many ESG topics. And two, working with investment advisors using ESG strategies and products to ensure that investors understand what that advisor's brand of ESG means in theory and practice. On July 28th, SEC Chair Gary Gensler said he has instructed commission staff to draft a mandatory climate risk disclosure rule proposal by the end of the year and to consider requiring managers of green funds to disclose the criteria and underlying data they use. Speaking on a webinar hosted by Principles for Responsible Investment, Chair Gensler used analogies to the Olympics to describe how public company disclosure is evolving. Noting that the Olympics added soccer, basketball, and women's sports at the request of fans, Gensler said the SEC is planning to add more corporate disclosure mandates at the behest of investors. He pointed out that the Olympics rules and scoring systems are both qualitative and quantitative and are used to measure athletes' performance now and over time. Chair Gensler said the commission is considering a similar system to help investors measure the risk climate change presents to companies. Chair Gensler also said the SEC is considering disclosure that is mandatory, consistent, comparable, decision useful, and included in companies' Form 10-Ks. Chair Gensler explained that qualitative disclosures would answer key questions such as how a company's leadership manages climate-related risks and opportunities and how these factors feed into the company's strategy. Quantitative disclosures would include metrics related to greenhouse gas emissions, financial impacts of climate change, and progress toward climate-related goals. Chair Gensler said he asked the SEC staff specifically to make recommendations about how companies might disclose their scope one and scope two emissions, along with whether to disclose scope three emissions, and if so, how and under what circumstances. Other considerations would be whether there should be certain metrics for specific industries, and whether companies might provide scenario analyses on how a business might adapt to a range of possible physical, legal, market, and economic changes that it might contend with in the future. In addition, the SEC staff may propose the disclosure of data or metrics that companies could use to inform investors about how they are meeting plans to be net zero or complying with the Paris Agreement. Chair Gensler said that staff should learn from and be inspired by external standard centers, such as the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, but should not wait for these groups to act before drafting rules and establishing a climate risk disclosure regime. Chair Gensler also addressed greenwashing that some funds engage in when they claim to be sustainable or low carbon without providing significant proof. Chairman Gensler said he directed the SEC staff to consider recommendations about whether fund managers should be required to disclose the criteria and underlying data that they use and to re-examine the names rule which says that if it, a fund's name suggests a particular investment type, the fund must invest at least 80% of the value of its assets in that investment type. On July 30th, SEC Chair Gary Gensler issued a statement 
noting that in light of recent developments in China and the overall risk with China-based variable interest entity structure, he's asked the staff to seek certain disclosures from offshore issuers associated with China-based operating companies before the registration statements will be declared effective. Specifically, Chairman Gensler has asked SEC staff to ensure that these issuers prominently and clearly disclose three items. Number one, that investors are not buying shares of a Chinese-based operating company, but instead are buying shares of a shell company issuer that maintains service agreements with the associated operating company. Number two, that the China-based operating company, the shell company issuer, and investors face uncertainty about future actions by the government of China that could significantly affect the operating company's financial performance and the enforceability of the contractual arrangements. And three, detailed financial information, including quantitative metrics, so that investors can understand the financial relationship between the variable interest entity and the issuer. In addition, Chair Gensler has asked the SEC staff to ensure that all China-based operating companies seeking to register securities with the SEC, either directly or through a shell company, disclose the following two additional items. Number one, whether the operating company and the issuer, where applicable, received or were denied permission from Chinese authorities to list on U.S. exchanges, the risks that such approval could be denied or rescinded, and a duty to disclose if approval was rescinded. And two, that the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act may result in the delisting of the operating company in the future if the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board is unable to inspect the firm. Finally, Chair Gensler has also asked SEC staff to engage in targeted additional reviews of filings for companies with significant China-based operations. In other corporate governance news, on July 15th, CII sent a letter to the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation. In the letter, CII applauds the foundation's efforts to explore the development of a global architecture for sustainability reporting in the form of an International Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. The International Sustainability Accounting Standards Board would establish a baseline for environmental, social, and governance disclosure. CI's letter states that we generally believe that a single set of global sustainability standards applicable to companies around the world, including registrants under the SEC rules, would be the ideal solution to addressing investors' needs for that information. CII's letter also recommended as a precondition to CII's support, changes to the governance of the foundation and their plans for the structure and function of the new standard setting board, including the following three items. Number one, the composition of the board of trustees of the foundation should include balanced representation from qualified investors with at least half of the investor trustees possessing significant knowledge of or having experience with financial and investment analysis incorporating sustainability issues. Two, uh, the new standard setting board should be comprised of full-time members to ensure the independence of the standard setter. Three, the new standard setter should be designed and operated in a manner that will be responsive 
the needs of the primary customer of ESG disclosures, who are investors. And fourth, the foundation should secure adequate funding to ensure economic independence of the new standard setting body and the existing International Accounting Standard Setting Board. That concludes my monthly corporate governance and financial regulatory update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed in CII's positions on those issues, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at cii.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.